Hey everybody. So today, what I want to talk about is something a little bit more controversial. It's going to be kind of hard to work through, regardless of your perspective. I think it was tough for me. And so, what I want to, it's, it's going to be about feminism and patriarchy within the Bible, within the Israelite society. And so, the reason I want to do it is because for class, a biblical contextualization class, and the purpose of the class is, is really to challenge us, right? So this is something important too. When you're in undergraduate studies, you're kind of just memorizing the work of other people um, for the most part. Graduate studies, it's supposed to be inquiry-based learning. So you kind of start with a question. You're meant to go and research beyond that part. So this, that's that's the idea. We're, we're meant to start with something challenging and work past it. So we're, we wind up doing a bit of reading. So. The first thing I had to read was a book called uh, Texts of Terror, Literary Feminist Readings and Biblical Narratives by Phyllis Tribal. It was delivered at Yale University and in, is in 1984. And so essentially this is a, uh, a literary analysis of the Bible, or literary criticism of the Bible from the perspective of sort of his inadequacy of protecting women so we go it look it examines a very it's a really it's not actually generally a critique it's not an attack it's just a raw examination for the most part of how the bible handles women and she extends that to israelite society but then there's even a tone of sort of the uh, the inadequacy of god's response to the vulnerable so it's an examination of the vulnerability of people, but it, the primary perspective is the vulnerability of women and how they would be the most vulnerable in Israelite society. And then I just today read an article uh, delivered as a presidential address to the, uh, the president of the Society of Biblical Literature. This is back in 2013. It was delivered by Carol Myers. And the address is, was Israel a patriarchal society? Now, the reason this interested me was because you kind of read it, you go, well, yeah, okay, of course. That was actually my response. I said, yeah, of course it was. And then in the introduction paragraph, she goes, this is not meant to be a rhetorical question to elicit a response of, of course it was. And so I said, all right, you got my attention. I'll read the rest of your article. You, you call me out so directly. So, Text of Terror, it goes through four stories. It goes through the daughter of Jephthah from the book of Judges. It goes through the unnamed concubine from the book of Judges as well. It goes through the story of Tamar, the story of Hagar. So, I just want, I want to, I'm going to do a very brief synopsis of it. Because it's really only one story that her perspective I thought was poorly substantiated that I kind of have a lot to say about but I, I do want to touch on um, Hagar and Tamar specifically because they're they're interesting and they're interesting for different reasons so Hagar if you recall was the servant of Sarah Sarah the wife of Abraham and at the time Abraham had been promised to be a father of nations right so he was He's going to have seeds that outnumbered the sands, the, the grains of sand. But Sarah was barren. 
Sarah couldn't have kids, and so she was very old. And so what she does is she gives her servant to Abraham. She says, you know, go into my servant and have a kid with her. So he does. He has a kid with uh, Hagar. The kid's name is Ishmael. And eventually, so God says, hey, what are you doing? You know, blesses Sarah. She gets pregnant. They have Isaac. And Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. And there you go. That's sort of the lineage there. Now, the, the, the first thing that she knows is that Hagar was entirely vulnerable in the situation. Well, she's a servant, and she's also um, she she has no she has no say in her own body, right? She's just given to become the mistress of Abraham. And so it's interesting because she doesn't strictly tribal doesn't strictly go and say this is a male-oriented story where the male is dominating. She actually goes and interplays between the power dynamics of Sarah and Hagar. And then she actually makes an interesting note. She notes that for a lot of the story, Abraham becomes a secondary figure. Now, he's primarily a dominant figure, primarily the focus is on him, but he becomes a secondary figure for parts of the story where Sarah is the decision maker. For example, when Sarah says, I want Hagar and Ishmael out of here, she kicks them out. Abraham is sort of secondary, and he's he enacts that based on her decision. But what we also see is a, 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 an adjustment of power. So you have the servant, Hagar, who is very low in society, who now has value because she is the mother of the child of Abraham, who is the head of the household, and now, so Sarah gets in fear that she's losing her status to Hagar. And she resents Ishmael every time she sees him, especially after she has Isaac. And so that, that's what caused her to cast her out. So there's this interplay that she notes between the changing powers between Sarah and Hagar, ultimately leading to Sarah's appeal to Abraham to kick Hagar out. Now, ultimately, her... her her conclusion is that um, Hagar has to kind of go to Abraham, and the story is all about Abraham, so it is ultimately a patriarchal story. And Hagar is the ultimately vulnerable person because she's a woman and a servant, so she gets the boot, and she has no say in things. And, she's, and so she kicked out, and what ends up happening? God doesn't defend the vulnerable. God still blesses Abraham and Sarah. He blesses these unjust oppressors, especially Abraham. And so, now, now Hagar, you you might remember, goes into the wild and she's going to die. And God saves her. Saves her, saves the child. And then the, the child is made a father of nations. Ishmael founds the Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites, you'll see them throughout Genesis a little bit more. But the, the Muslims will trace their lineage back to Abraham and they will say that they are descendants of the line of Ishmael. So the, the current Muslims are the Ishmaelites. So if you look at it from that perspective, you could say that this prediction of Ishmael being the father of nations, well, that was pretty accurate, right? Muslim Islam is uh, one of the most 
populist religions on earth right now. And so I don't I don't know that we can look. I don't I don't know I'll get more into this a little bit later, but I don't know that we can look and say, yeah, this is kind of God being I don't care about the vulnerable. I mean, God does all sorts of things to care about the vulnerable. But here we see similar to similar to Job, right? Where he says, "Hey Job, who are you to question me? You don't I'm outside of time. You don't know what's going on. Where were you? Wait, you know, does Leviathan come to you? We don't know what's going to happen with Hagar. We don't know what's going to happen with Abraham. I mean, look at uh Look at Abraham constantly saying, hey, when's this going to happen? When am I going to have these kids? Sarah, she lost her patience too. You can't lose your patience. Things take, come in time. And that's what wound up happening. Ishmael was the father of nations. It didn't happen in his generation. Sure. But how many times has that happened in the Bible? All sorts of things take quite a while to come to fruition for many people. I mean, look at the story of Elijah. He keeps saying, hey guys, there's going to be rain, there's going to be rain. Well, it takes forever before that he even sees a cloud. And everybody's saying, hey, come on, get out of here. All right, so the next story is about Tamar, right? The daughter of David, who is raped by her brother, and her other brother murders Absalom. So, she is, the, the thing that I think was a little bit unsubstantiated here, at least she... I don't, I'm not doubting that this might be the case, but she doesn't substantiate it in the book very well. She kind of just states it as a fact. She says that um, Tamar represents wisdom, whereas Absalom represents lust. I don't, I don't know that we can read Tamar as representing wisdom. I don't know that, at least not as self-evidently within the book. She displays some wisdom. She says, don't do this sinful thing, but simply saying a law, presumably uh, to prevent yourself from getting raped. I don't, I don't know that that makes you a representative of wisdom. It is a, is a wise statement, but that's, that's, not, that's not all that important to her overall point, which is that Tamar was ultimately helpless and weak. Well, no argument there. Yeah, she was. Where was God to, to protect her? He didn't. She got raped. Now, that's not to say that there was no response, right? We got raped or got murdered. That's pretty good. Well, not, not good, necessarily. Murder probably isn't great. But there was there was justice in that. God did react. Now, if, if we're going to go through the Bible and say, geez, guys, didn't this guy suffer? Where was God in preventing the suffering of person X? We, it's very we sh it's very hard to say that we can narrow that down to females disproportionately to, to males. Well, you actually proportionate maybe, but numerically you certainly couldn't do it, right? It's the overwhelming majority of people who get screwed over within the Bible are male, and then later on there's a reaction. Later on there's some justice. And the last one I want to talk about is the unnamed uh, the unnamed concubine. This is in the Book of Judges. And so what happens with this unnamed concubine is it's one of the most disturbing things that we see in the Bible. It happens in the book of Judges. What we have is a Levite from Ephraim, 
and he goes to Gibeah. And nobody wants anything to do with the guy. You know, they say they reject him. He's getting no hospitality. So he encounters another guy from Ephraim. And he says, what's your situation? All right, yeah, come. you can come stay with me. He invites the guy in. Now these, then, guy gets a knock on the door. These sons of Belial are out there. And they say, where is he? We want to know him. So they're going to they, they're gonna gang rape this guy. So what is the... What did the owner of the house do? He says, no, 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 no. Don't do this wicked thing. There's a concubine. Look, take her. You can take my daughter. Offers him up. All right, so that's the first thing. What we see here is there's more value to protecting a male from being raped than a female. All right, so there, there's been many biblical commentaries that'll talk about this, and this is where tribal goes with it too. That this is a product of the low status of women in society, that their safety is not more important than men. And absolutely, that is absolutely one perspective. It's, it's, it's tough to contend with, but yeah, that is ultimately a part of it. But there's you can't ignore, and, and to say that you have, it's self-evident which is greater is, is, is just untrue. You can't ignore that the other perspective is that homosexuality was viewed as a sin. Homosexual rape was also a sin. Obviously. Alright, so... and Another thing to consider here is that there is a status difference, right? What wound up happening was not... It wasn't as though this it was the same thing to send your daughter or the concubine what wound up happening was the concubine went the daughter was unharmed the concubine went they took the concubine they knew her all night and she comes back next morning collapses dies she's chopped into 12 pieces now this is where uh tribal's analysis sort of stops so it's just, it's interesting it's interesting because she stops right there and then she concludes that Israel's concern has no room for the safety of women. Doesn't 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 care about it. And I don't I don't find this to be true, because look at the reaction. She wasn't just chopped into twelve pieces because of brutality. She was chopped into twelve pieces to send to the twelve tribes of Israel, so that they could convene and say, "Hey, who? What the heck? Who did this? We're gonna drop the hammer on somebody." So, it's, it wasn't as though her death was ignored and laughed at, and the crime was unpunished. It occurred, definitely. And that's tough to contend with. That's, that's hard to hear. But there was an attempt made to make it right. And there's also something I want to, I want to talk about, too, is, is that Tribal concludes, and I think incorrectly in an unsubstantiated way, that she explicitly says that, well, the powerlessness of the concubine was because she was a woman, not because she was a servant. This doesn't seem to be true. Like I said, it wasn't. there was not an equality between her and the daughter. She went, the daughter didn't. He said you could take either one. There is a preference made for the daughter. 
status has something to do with it. If you're going to go ahead and give me the story of Hagar and Sarah, don't tell me that status has nothing to do with anything. Of course, servitude versus master, of course there's a status difference. So there's a multitude of vulnerabilities here that are being dealt with by this unnamed concubine. She's both a servant and a woman, both of which make her a little more vulnerable. So that that's the first thing I think was unsubstantiated. But then to conclude that Israeli society has no concern, I don't think that's accurate either. Like I said, I think that there was enough of a reaction to it that we include that Israelite society has a value towards women. Okay. So that's that's that book. And that, that was really my only critique. The really the, the I found the weakest case that was made within the entire book was that one, the unnamed concubine. However, then I get to this article that is about was Israel a patriarchal society? And like I said, I said, yeah, sure. It's old, we progressed, we got past it. But what she does is she counters this narrative. Not by saying explicitly no. She's saying that the term patriarchy is not as useful in describing ancient Israelite society as we think. And it needs to be discarded. So what does she mean? Patriarchy as we use it today is referred to a societally society-wide dominance by males. So it's this sort of oppressive dominance that permeates through our society. She says this doesn't seem to be the case. Myers goes through and discusses ancient societies and says that the 19th century concept of patriarchy needs to be reevaluated. Because the idea is men are the heads of all institutions, they don't, they have an sort of all-powerful dominance where they don't need to consult the women. The women were pretty much nothing. That's not the case. Now, she doesn't argue that classical studies, she explicitly says classical studies do not say there was equality, but there was not this powerful and powerless dominance that we hear about. Okay, so she talks about Rome. And she says, well, it turns out Rome had, at least in the elites, elite uh, parts of Roman society, women were managing property. Women were managing finances. And then she, she goes even further when she examines ancient Israelite society. Now, a note she makes, and this is interesting too, and it might be a new information to you. The Bible was written almost entirely after the fact. Many of the biblical texts were written centuries after the events presumably occurred. So, what she says is that, look guys, the Bible was written centuries afterwards in a, by males in an urban society. So these are sort of they're, they're elite in their own way, but they're certainly a step away from the societies that they're discussing, right? If you are a male within an urban society centuries later, you're living a very different life than an agricultural and rural Jew from centuries prior to you. And so she is making a case that the 
female perspective from the ancient society is not well captured. And it's changed over time as we moved into urbanism. But it at least wasn't well captured. But it's not that it's as though it's not present. And it, as it turns out, archaeological evidence points towards a different picture of Israelite society, ancient Israelite society. As it turns out, women were performing similar roles as in Rome. The roles between men and women, many were shared. And there was, it seems as though, there was a, a very mutual dependence between male and female, is the way that she words it. A lot of discussion. A lot of, okay, what should we do here? What do you think about this? And so, as far as the roles go, there was different roles, definitely. For example, the man was considered to be the head of the household. He had authority over the children, right? But the woman, she was sort of a, she was in charge of maintenance activities. Now, that doesn't just mean cleaning, guys. The, ma the making of textiles was as important for the household as anything else. The managing of finances, that was handled primarily by the women. Property management, handled primarily by the women. The man's job was go out there and let's say he's a, you know, a carpenter or a merchant or something like that. He's out there bringing new stuff in. She's in here maintaining stuff. It was physical work. It was intellectual work. And when you're working with textiles, it's some of the most technologically advanced work of the time. Women had a very respectable role within the household. And no decision was made, I'm the man so I decide. No, you had to take it to the woman too. They both had opinions. So he is the head of the house, but it's a very mutual relationship. Now, again, she's not saying that these were equal societies, but the perspective we have is flawed, is limiting. Now, another thing discussed is this sort of idea that a patriarchy, a patriarchal society where the man is the head of the household, that extends towards all areas of society, right? He's the head of the house, so man is all that matters. You're walking around the street, you better be a man. She argues that this is not the case. It, As far as she can tell, there were various roles for both men and women within society. But this idea that women had no role, it, it, it's not true, and their opinion didn't count, it's just not true. And what she's she notes with other ancient society as far as religious practices. She doesn't notice this with ancient Israel, because as far as I know, ancient Israelite religious practices were almost entirely dominated by men. But in other ancient sites, like Greece, for example, new scholarship is finding that women likely had very important roles in many religious activities. So she says, I'm gonna go through, she has a checklist here, I'm gonna kind of summarize some of her main points that she concludes with. So a fundamental problem is that the idea of patriarchy rests on a naturalized view of women as inferior to men and thus incapable of making decisions, controlling resources or providing leadership. So she, she disagrees with this. The universality of patriarchy, she disagrees with this. She also suggests that the current label of patriarchy 
be, is being imposed from a Western capitalistic perspective on ancient societies that was not the same back then, right? So she's saying that the modern capitalistic idea of individual individuality was not as important back then as it is now. The female's role was less individualistic, and so they had a very important role. She also makes a note that the patriarchy paradigm assumes that household dynamics are monolithic, but specific forms of male dominance cannot be generalized indicators of total male control. I think that's, I think it's relatively important. You, you, not all household relationships are the same. Not all household relationships become universal with between societies that um, have similar value systems spread across the board and different cities are going to have different ideas just like we see anywhere else and what happens in the household is not necessarily a universal representation of society at large and so she really she uses the word superimpose a lot she really thinks that we're superimposing modern ideas onto ancient societies and so she thinks that invoking patriarchy means considering women helpless victims thus facing in the many ways in which women circumvent or foil male mechanisms of power now this is absolutely accurate right the blessed mother mary look at her she's considered the least and she's raised to someone of, of great value the mother of christ we can see the, the the first story now it's a negative thing but look at the importance that the woman has she has a say between her and adam she says boom eat the fruit eats the fruit change the course of humanity forever we can go look at sarah and abraham he already had a son he would have had two sons he was probably happy to have two sons he had to cast out one of his two sons who he loved by the way we loved they have a role they have a role and it changes the course of history and so then her final note is uh, proclaiming that women in ancient non-western society were oppressed in a patriarchal system arguably encodes a belief in the cultural superiority of modern democracies okay so this is another thing where she's saying look you're making assumptions about our social progress and she's suggesting that they're unfounded you're taking a presupposition that we are superior and trying to reconcile the views of the bible with that so okay so what was her solution her final conclusion is okay well can we use is patriarchy an appropriate term is israel a patriarchal society no the answer is no it's insufficient. She's not suggesting equality. She's suggesting that there is hierarchies, there's acknowledgement of hierarchies. However, they're non-linear, right? You can have, in certain areas, women would be further than men. In certain areas, men would be behind women. In a, in where, and, and in these societies, the way it generally shakes out is that men will be at the higher end of some things, women will be at the higher end of other things, and the, for the most part, as far as societal power and positions of power, it'll be covered by men. There is hierarchies, but they're non-linear. It's not universal. And either way, it's not as though it was an oppressive society where women had no power and no authority. 
And that's sort of her conclusion. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was a really good read. And I, I invite you guys to check it out. It's worth reading. Uh, Carol Myers was Ancient Israel Patriarchal Society. And then actually, you know, go ahead and read um, Phyllis Tribble's book, The Text of Terror, Literary Feminist Readings of Biblical Narratives. So kind of some closing thoughts here. I think that we can take this and one take this take this for what it is, right? Just digest it all, chew on it. And what you'll find is that it's it's it is challenging. Was God, this is something that a lot of people in class have trouble with, was God really sort of uncaring and unfeeling towards these vulnerable people where he let this happen? Was well, kind of an allegation that that's not been levied even specifically in the context of women. What about, you know, the indifference of God towards all sorts of people in the Bible is, is, a, is, a, is an allegation that is regularly lobbed at Christians by atheistic circles. But we don't see this to be the case. We see God to have a greater perspective. Like I brought up Job, we don't know what his overall plan is. We weren't there at the beginning of time. We've never encountered Leviathan. We don't know his plan. He's viewing things from the grand and meta perspective outside of time. And all things are going in a specific direction. So, I mean, I mean the, the height of this, the height of this example, if you want to say, look, I don't want to hear about this we need to, you know, suffer for God. The height of this is Jesus. Jesus, his own son, was made to suffer greatly. And then through his suffering and death, he was glorified in the resurrection. So this ought to cause us to pause and reconsider. Anytime we say, look at the way these people suffer. Look at the way these people were killed. That is is evidence of God's indifference or uncaringness towards people's unfeelingness towards people. Because it turns out, through suffering and death, the greatest glorification is achieved. Through martyrdom in the of the righteous, the glorification is achieved of the Son of Man. It's worth thinking about. Now, we can also take these and look at them in the context of our current society, right? Outside of just the presumed patriarchy that we see, especially in third wave feminism, there is this presumption that the only way to, to view society is in terms of power struggles between class, between race, between gender, between sexual orientation. And I think that Carol Meyer's view is, is, a, is a useful one. Now, because we do see, we do see certain things shake out in a way, right? You know, you could say, well, as it turns out, in academia, Asians tend to do better. As it turns out, here, men use to do better. As it turns out, here, um, white folk do better. Yeah, you could say that. What Carol Myers might say, I think, is the hierarchies might exist, but they might not be as linear as you think. There's enough exceptions. There is not powerlessness to it. 
And this, I think, Myers is, as far as I can tell, a feminist. But she's not this we are solely an oppressed victimhood style of feminism. This weakens the woman as far as she can tell. She says women had a part to play and it was an important part and it's integral and frankly it was part of ancient societies. And we lost touch with that. She's in trying to reinvigorate what she sees as a historical feminism. She's trying to reinvigorate that and say, we had important roles to play. Always have. Don't lose sight of that by considering yourself a powerless victim. And don't try and say that they were powerless victims back then. I think it's, it's, it's a very empowering and uplifting message. I think it's important. And, and it's worth struggling and grappling with these ideas because they are tough. But I think that the more you struggle, the more you grapple, the more you read commentaries, the more you read scholarly articles, the more you listen to lectures, the more you pray, the more you'll find that these issues are always addressed. There is always a solution, especially if the problem is of suffering. There's always a solution to that, because suffering, I think, is probably one of the best critiques of the Bible. But there's always an answer, and the answer, I think, is found in the, in the story of Christ. So that's kind of it. I hope that you guys have a great week. God bless all of you. Talk to you later.